Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome back to The Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Okay, this week we will talk about social awkwardness with journalist and author Melissa Dahl. Now, usually, awkwardness gets thrown around as a trait, as part of our personalities, as in, I hate parties because I'm so awkward, or I have a hard time meeting people because I'm awkward. But Melissa looks at awkwardness in a different way, as an emotion. And that is a feeling we can all relate to. It's the emotion we feel whenever we cringe, recoil, or shudder. So for example, we feel it when we remember something humiliating from our past, or from hearing our own voice on a voicemail, or when watching pretty much anything involving Larry David. So Melissa Dahl is a senior editor at New York Magazine's The Cut, where she covers health and psychology. And in 2014, she helped launch Science of Us, New York Magazine's popular social science vertical. Her new book, which we'll talk about today, is Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness. And I have to say, it is excellent and quite useful as we will discuss. So, Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so like I said, so your book is called Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness. So let's define those two terms. So what is awkwardness? What is cringing? And how are they connected? Yeah, I was thinking about this. So I think that if I want to kind of differentiate between the two, I think about awkwardness as maybe like an atmospheric condition, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, someone says something, it doesn't even have to be you who said the awkward thing or, or that this tension, this like feeling kind of permeates the room. Um, this just happened at a dinner party I was at um, this weekend. Someone said just a really off-color joke and it, you could just like feel the tension kind of like come over the table. It felt really awkward. So I think that's kind of how I think about it. Like awkwardness is almost like this cloud that like mm. expands to like fill the shape. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think about cringing maybe as more personal, like cringing to me is something that I kind of feel internally. It's something I do when I'm thinking about my actions or when I'm maybe cringing at someone else's actions. But but cringing feels a little bit more individual, I think. And, um, and maybe awkwardness is a little more widespread. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So like awkwardness is like kind of more public, maybe or shared, whereas yeah. cringing is more personal, like cringing is 
the reaction to the atmosphere? Yeah, okay. I think so. That makes sense. Okay. So your book was helpful in me kind of changing or, or looking at awkwardness in a different way, because I generally thought about awkwardness as a personality trait like Larry David or Michael Scott or Sheldon Cooper. So tell us more about awkwardness as an emotion. Yeah. So it just became more interesting to me to think about it this way. Like, basically, when I told people while I was working on this book that I was writing a book about awkwardness, they would say to me, you don't strike me as particularly awkward. And I would, you know, I'd say like, well, I'll I'll take the compliment. Thank you. But I feel this way all the time, you know. And so I think that it just became more interesting to me to think about it as a feeling. Because if you think about, you know, those folks you just mentioned, like Michael Scott or or Larry David, um, I've been rewatching The Office (laughs) the last (laughs) couple weeks. um, And I think we could certainly say Michael Scott is, you know, perhaps an awkward person, but I don't think he often feels awkward. Mm -hmm. He will say something that is kind of offensive or, you know, kind of makes everybody else in the room feel weird, but I don't think he feels it himself. So for me, it just became like, you know, thinking about who am I writing for? I'm writing for people who are are bothered by this. I'm writing for people who want to kind of feel more comfortable in their own skin. And I don't think a lot of so-called awkward people struggle with that. So yeah, it just became more interesting to me to, to look at it as kind of a an internal thing. Oh, and not to kind of just drone on and on, but we know that emotions are contagious. I can like pick up anger from you and then I'll start to feel a little anger. I can pick up anxiety from you and I'll start mm-hmm. to feel a little nervous. And I think awkwardness works that way too. Like I was saying, it's kind of atmospheric. If you say something that makes the feeling in the room a little weird, I'll pick up on it. And so will the person next to me and we'll all share this feeling. So, um, and yeah. Then, and then you and the person next to you will exchange glances. <laughs> exactly. Whereas if I'm Michael Scott, I'll remain oblivious. So there's a phrase you use in the book that I want you to explain. So what is the irreconcilable gap? And yeah. how does that fuel feelings of awkwardness? Oh my gosh. So I love this. This was something when I came across it in my my research, it just kind of blew my mind and just helped lock everything into place for me. So basically to kind of back up, I came across this report from this anthropologist in the 1970s who went to go see this tribe in Papua New Guinea. And he believed, he had reason to believe that they had never seen what they looked like. They didn't have any cameras. They didn't have any mirrors. They'd never seen what they looked like. And so he came and he brought cameras and he brought mirrors and he kind of wanted to record what happened. And in his notes, he he published this paper um, a couple years later, he writes that um, they ducked their heads and they covered their mouths and their stomach muscles betrayed great tension. And I'm reading that and I'm like, oh my gosh, like that sounds like what I do when I'm, when I'm cringing at myself, you know, (laughs) when I remember something stupid I said or did, or when I feel kind of judged in the moment, like I said, something awkward. So that made me think that maybe what we say, when we say something makes us cringe, maybe it means that we suddenly are seeing ourselves from somebody else's point of view, it frees you out of your own perspective and you, you see yourself the way you must look to other people. And this really brilliant um, Emory psychologist, Philippe Rochat has this term for this called the irreconcilable gap, which he says is the distance between kind of the version of yourself you hold in your own head and the version of you the world is actually seeing. And I think that moments that make us cringe are the moments that kind of illuminate the fact that those two are not always one in the same. Yeah, it's like those memes you see online, like what I think I look like when I'm running and, it, you know, yeah. there's like this Olympic runner and then what I really look like when I'm running and it's this like yeah. flailing toddler running yeah. <laughs> yeah, and tripping over her own feet. So, yeah, okay. 
it's the feeling like when you hear your voice played back on a recording, mm, you, know, mm-hmm. or you see a picture of yourself, you're like, oh, no, I didn't know I looked like that, you know? <laughs> right, right. Does my hair really look like that? Yeah. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So uh, there's one particular concept from the book I really want to touch on because this was so helpful to me. So tell us about cringe attacks. Oh, my gosh. Yes. This was another kind of thing where sometimes if you have a term, it kind of just helps you get your arms around a phenomenon. When I was writing this book, I didn't have this term. And then um, I kind of was searching online. And this is kind of what people call it online. Um, A cringe attack is basically those moments when just an embarrassing memory comes back to haunt you. You know, it could be years old, but it comes back and I say this in the book, but when that happens to me, I like react physically, mm-hmm. like I'll like mm-hmm. shake my head and I'll usually like just whisper something like, oh, that's so embarrassing. And I thought that was the only person that happened to. Me um, too. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And it is not at all. A lot of people say this. Um, a lot of people I interviewed say this. So yeah, it's, it's a, you're not alone in it. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah. No. So there was in the book, there was this wonderful story. So you write about this acquaintance of yours who was just brushing her teeth and then like yeah. this memory from years prior, like she I guess she got high on ecstasy at a Halloween party and then like made out with two guys. And like while brushing her teeth, she just yelled at her reflection like, oh, my God, oh, my God, why did you do yeah. that? And like, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this is so validating because like when an embarrassing memory pops into my head, it's also usually when I'm doing something mindless, like while I'm bike commuting, like folding laundry or like just something mindless. And then this memory just out of the blue pops into my head and I have a physical reaction and I say something out loud like, no, 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 or like, yeah. ah, you know, yeah. And it's just, it was so validating to hear about this and and just not feel alone in this. So that was so great. I'm yes. I'm there with you. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so with that, is there anything we can do when we experience them or is just knowing we're not alone and that this is totally normal, it's like sufficient? For me, I think, both things are have helped me just knowing, knowing talking to people that, you know, like you said, that you'll say something out loud, or, or, you know, just hearing that from other people that this happens to that was so helpful for me, just first of all, but then I kind of tried to dig around to find some things that might help minimize the pain of when this happens, because it's really, really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Um, So one thing um, that some research says works is, you know, that kind of your instinct is to like push the memory out of your brain as quickly as possible. But there are some folks who um, did a study a couple years ago about all sorts of painful memories, not just embarrassing memories, but, um, you know, actual trauma too. And they say that one thing that helps is kind of like stay in the memory, but to try to remember the non-painful parts. Like if it's an embarrassing memory, just try to remember other things like neutral things like what did it smell like? What did it sound like? You know, who else was there? And they say that that is supposed to help lessen the pain, which is interesting. That's kind of counterintuitive. Another thing that worked for me, though, is kind of digging around in the research about self-compassion. And a lot of that research compares self-compassion to self-esteem. And some of the studies they've done is to have people recall like an awkward or embarrassing memory from their high school days and the self-esteem folks in that condition, they will try to just like pump themselves up and say like, oh, like it wasn't really my fault or like that wasn't really me or like it wasn't really that embarrassing. But the self-compassion folks, I thought this was so interesting. They kind of look directly at the memory and kind of let it all in and say like, okay, that maybe that was, that was pretty embarrassing and people did see and uh, I am the kind of person who does silly things. But kind of like taking a a direct look at themselves uh, seems to be more helpful in 
withstanding the pain than trying to push it away. So I hope that makes sense. So what I heard is that there are two kind of two buckets of tools. And one is to try to think of other details from that memory to kind of give it more of a context, maybe fill in the picture more so it's not just this embarrassing thing in isolation. And then the second is, like you said, with the self-compassion, is to realize that or to look at it head on and to have some acceptance around it. So to welcome it in and to realize that it's okay to have embarrassing moments and that everybody else on the entire planet does as well. Yeah. And so the other the other piece of the self-compassion literature I should also mention is folks who are high in self-compassion kind of tend to recognize that they are part of a like an interconnected whole, you know, that nothing they've done is the worst thing ever. Nothing they've done is the most embarrassing thing ever. So that has really helped me. Something that I'm kind of haunted by, I've been writing on the internet as a journalist for the last like 11 years, and I have some really embarrassing stories out there associated with my name. And sometimes those will come back to me. And what I do now is I try to to do that to put myself in this wider context of interconnected online journalists, I suppose. And And I just think about like, okay, Yes, maybe that story was kind of cringeworthy in retrospect, but everybody who writes online feels this way. Everybody who writes feels this way about things from their past. So that has been something that's been really helpful for me, just to think about it, to put myself in a wider context to kind of, um, you know, I'm not I'm not that special and isn't that kind of a relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Okay, so now back to our conversation. So something that I talk about a lot to people with social anxiety, which is related, uh, certainly not the same thing as awkwardness or cringing, but definitely some overlap with that Venn diagram, is, so I talk about the spotlight effect, which is our overestimation of how much attention other people pay us. So we might feel like everybody is watching us, but in reality, it's many fewer people than we think who actually notice our foibles or our screw-ups. But it's not true that no one notices. People do notice when we trip over the sidewalk or we have a coughing fit during an exam or we have toilet paper stuck to our shoe. It's just not as many as we think. Okay, so that is the spotlight effect. 
But you brought up a different phenomenon that I was not aware of called the invisibility cloak illusion. So what is that? And then later, let's talk about how we can reconcile the two. So I was so annoyed at the existence of the invisibility cloak illusion because I'm writing this book and I thought that the spotlight effect was going to be like, you know, kind of a, a peak moment, you know, like, oh, it turns out like no one's paying attention to your embarrassing moments anyway, like just, you know, dance like no one's watching. You're great. And then this study comes out last year um, where these researchers coined this term, the invisibility cloak illusion. And it's kind of this thing where like we we walk throughout the world assuming um like, okay, like on my commute into the office today, I kind of was on the train assuming that no one was, you know, really looking at me because I'm just going about my own business, nothing remarkable. But, you know, I definitely saw the girl across from me and I looked at her shoes and I looked at her jacket, you know, we all kind of watch each other, but we assume just in mundane moments like that, but we assume people aren't watching us, which is true. But then I was like, well, how do I reconcile that with this? spotlight effect, this idea that, that people think that everybody's looking at them. And um, the way these researchers did it, because they they kind of grapple with the spotlight effect um, in their paper, the one about the invisibility cloak illusion, they say that basically we just are all too focused on what we're focused on. And we're assuming like, if I am paying attention to the fact that there's a coffee stain on my shirt, so are you. If I'm not paying attention to myself on the train right now, I am assuming you're not either. But that's not true. People pay attention to all sorts of things. And so it's kind of it's kind of just another reminder that you know, people have minds of their own <laughs> and uh, we, we can't always know what other people are thinking. So, yeah. OK. And so here. So even if people are watching and people have minds of their own and might be paying attention to us or our shoes or our jacket, are they necessarily judging us? No, I mean, I think that's the that's the spotlight effect It's kind of the assumption that people are noticing your your bad hair days and your your embarrassing moments. And invisibility cloak illusion is a little bit more about mundane moments. You know, you're in a waiting room and you're kind of observing other people, but you're not really conscious that other people are observing you. Um, but but for me, the way to reconcile the two is again just the idea that just because I'm focused on something doesn't mean doesn't mean somebody else is. Hmm. That that, that makes sense. Okay. So. Let's round this out with some useful tips. So what are your highest yield tips that you came across in your research to feel less awkward or on a slightly different wavelength to feel more comfortable with awkwardness? Yeah, so basically I attempted to write a book that was going to be kind of an anti-awkwardness guide. That, that That's even like in my book contract that I'm supposed to write a guide to overcoming awkwardness. And I, I feel like I ended up writing almost exactly the opposite. I, I felt like I wrote uh, more a book about kind of embracing this feeling and understanding it so it doesn't hold you back from, from doing things you want to do, but learning how it can be useful. So I think the irreconcilable gap is something that really helped me with this. I think you can learn to become more comfortable with awkwardness if you think about it that way. If you think about these moments where you kind of do something embarrassing and you cringe at yourself, they're sort of a gift if you think about them in a generous way because they free you from your own perspective from a minute and you can kind of see what you look like to somebody else. And that's hard to do. We, we can't always get a full picture of, of what we look like. Um, so I think that if awkward moments kind of illuminate this gap between who we think we are and who other people, how other people are seeing us, then sometimes, not always, these moments can kind of be opportunities to become a little closer towards that, that person that we think we are, that we wish we were. Yeah, absolutely. 
So also in the book, so you you did a lot of things like deliberately that you so you put yourself through a kind of awkwardness boot camp. And I don't remember who this was in the book, but somebody said to you, like, I think you've become immune to awkwardness. So tell us a little bit about what you did and what happened as you deliberately put yourself in these awkward moments. Yeah, that was Andrew. My fiance said that um, when I came back excitedly telling him about my amateur improv class, um, I was just like chatting about like, oh, we did three line scenes today. It was like pretty, a pretty big deal. And he just laughed at me like, I think you've become immune to awkwardness. That is the most awkward thing I can think of, amateur improv. So that was one of the things I did. And I did that specifically because um, I'm I kind of don't love situations that feel unpredictable. I like to feel like I have some control. I, uh, I, I'm not very good at thinking on my feet. And so I kind of wanted to do something that threw me into that kind of awkward situation, the kind that that felt weird and there wasn't a roadmap. So that's one of the things I did. I participated in this show called Mortified, uh, where people get up on stage and read from their teenage journals. So <laughs> I read from my seventh grade journal. There's a lot about Hanson in there, as it turns out, the 1990s boy band. Um, let's see, what else did I do? I visited a professional cuddler because I can feel a little awkward around physical contact sometimes. Uh, that one didn't go so well. I kind of um, cut out halfway through. But yeah, I did uh, I did a, a ton of weird stuff. Um, and the point of it a little bit was kind of the idea of exposure therapy, become more comfortable with this feeling and see if it can be useful. And I kind of think it was, I think it, I kind of came out the other side a little, like a little braver, like a little more, like a little less afraid of, of being direct and just kind of encountering awkwardness and not, not being afraid of it. So how can our listeners embrace awkwardness? Should they deliberately do awkward things? Or when awkward things inevitably happen, what mindset would you suggest they take towards it? Well, one place where I think a lot of awkwardness arises is in the workplace. Like when you are kind of discussing uncomfortable things, like if you're a manager and you have to deliver negative feedback, especially for a new manager, that can feel kind of awkward. Or as I was writing this book, we had a reorg at work and I didn't know who my boss was for a minute. And I I felt incredibly awkward to have to ask about that. Um, and normally I would have just waited for context clues to figure it out. But I, I just asked about it and, and I felt a little awkward and it was a little ridiculous. But um, I, I just think there is some power in facing these situations that feel awkward head on. And in a lot of cases, you kind of just either have to face the awkwardness or you just have to live with the thing that's bothering you um, in the workplace situation. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, this whole conversation has been super helpful. So thank you so much for talking with me. And it was a delight to chat with you. Melissa Dahl's first book is Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness, and you can pick it up wherever you like to get your books. Thank you so much for making The Savvy Psychologist a part of your life. Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Have an awesome week, and I'll see you here next Friday for a happier, healthier mind. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... 
Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.